but if you have your uh, device or whatever, you can turn uh, to the book of John, the Gospel of John chapter 1, and we're going to read some verses there. At the end of service, we're going to invite all of our students uh, from university right down to uh, preschool uh, up to the front, and we're going to pray for them. So at 11.05, um, the students will, be, will come and find you as parents in the room or grandparents. Uh, but if you have children that are... Um, you have children in, in uh, three to four class or younger, you will need to go get them and bring them into the auditorium for the prayer because we can't bring them in without you going to get them. And uh, we'll give you a couple of minutes to do that because I know that some of you want all of your families to be together uh, when we pray together for our students. So this is our text today, back to the basics. And uh, I'm reading the blue, you're reading the white, and this is what it says, in the beginning was the word, or in the beginning was Jesus, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and he was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And somehow this is not working. But if I turn it on, it'll help. Can you, uh, here we go. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the, the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Beautiful. Let's pray together. Father, again, we pause to thank you for your grace and mercy. And Lord, we thank you for the way in which you have shown that so extravagantly in Jesus Christ. And for the work and ministry of the Spirit that enables us to enjoy and, Lord, to be applicable in our lives those things which you have accomplished in Christ. And so, Lord, we ask today now as we look into your word that you would give us a voice to speak, that you would give us ears to hear, you will give us a mind to comprehend and hearts to understand. But particularly, as we leave this place today, that we'll go out into our homes and our neighborhoods and our workplaces and, and, our, and our places of education and all the places that we go throughout the week and carry out our lives, and that we may be able to show what it means to be followers of Jesus Christ practically and meaningfully. And we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you be seated? 
Uh, we're looking at this series called Back to the Basics, and, and what we're really going to be looking at over the next number of weeks is our mission, um, vision, and core values for Glad Tidings Church. Now, before you shut down there, it's not going to be something that is going to be sort of dry and that. I think you will find that there will be enough here to sort of inspire our hearts and our lives and our souls to live and to uh, toward Christ-likeness. Now, let me just give you a little bit of history of uh, how we went about the process of establishing our mission, vision, and core values for Glad Tidings Church. This happened last year. In the fall of last year, I pulled together uh, the board and the staff staff, there were uh, 16 of us in the room, and we went through six weeks of working through what we felt the, the mission, the vision, and the core values were for Glad Tidings Church and how we wanted to live out of those. And so we set that aside, and then in the new year, in January, I put together a group from the congregation, from every um, generation, every age group, and there were 16 that gathered over six more nights, and they were not given privy to what had happened in uh, the fall. Um, they just knew that we had met, and we went through the same process, and I put the second group through the very same process, and out of that, uh, those two groups, we came up with our mission, our vision, and our core values for Glad Tidings Church. And this is the first opportunity that I have had to sort of present this to the congregation. We presented it to the members at the uh, annual members meeting uh, last April, but this is the first time we've really sort of approached this. And um, so we're going to begin today to talk about, and by the way, if you want the full, if you want the uh, mission and the vision and the core values, uh, you can go on our website and you can read them there. Some of them are on the uh, back of our bulletin as well, um, but we'll be talking about them uh, over the next couple of weeks. And so today, uh, we begin with our mission statement, and our mission statement at Glad Tidings Church is simply this. That Glad Tidings Church exists to bring glory to God, to love and serve our community, and to invite people. Outline for what I'm talking about, I want to go through those three pieces. First of all, that Glad Tidings Church exists to bring glory to God. Now, what do we mean when we talk about the glory of God? Well, as it works out, actually a lot. The word glory, whether in the verb form or the noun form, it plays a uh, significant role and carries significant presence in the Bible. Now, I grew up in a very um, emotionally and a very... Uh, what's the word, um, expressive Pentecostal church. And I can remember our pastor talking about the glory of God, and he would use this uh, idea of glory as a definitive and emphatic way to talk about the magnitude and the wonder of God, and we're going to get to that in a moment. But in this very expressive and experiential Pentecostal church that I grew up in, we always had some people and one of the things that happened a lot is people would sense the presence of God. And we had one, this one particular lady, and when she'd feel the power of God, she'd go, glory! And when she really got going, she'd take out her white hanky and she'd, glory, glory, and she'd be doing that. And I'm thinking, man, what in the world does that mean? 
Well, that's part of the praise and the expression of God. But that's the kind of church I grew up in, and she would run around and dance around in the altar services and all that, and I kind of grew up in that environment, so you never know what's going to happen today. (laughs) Now, just relax. I'll be fine, and so will you. But what do we think of when we think of God's glory? What goes through our minds? What do you think of? What do I think of? Well, let me give maybe a couple of examples. For some of us who have a good working knowledge of the Bible, maybe we, the first thing that comes to our mind is Moses on Mount Sinai, where the glory of God comes down and there are special effects. The earth shakes and there's smoke, and there's fire, and there's lightning, and there's thunder, and the voice of God speaks. Maybe that's your image of what you think about when you think about the glory of God. Maybe you think of Exodus where Moses, where Moses asks God if he can see his glory. And God says, you can't see my glory. I'm going to I'm going to pass by, and I'm going to put you in a, in a crack in the rock, and I'm going to cover you with my hand, and when I pass by, you will be able to see my back. Maybe that's your vision. Or maybe your concept of the glory of God is from that majestic text in Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah describes, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Or maybe, maybe looking at the New Testament, maybe your idea of the glory of God or what comes to your mind is where Jesus is transfigured. And Peter, James, and John are there, and right before their eyes, Jesus' glory is revealed, and the Bible says that, that, they, were, that they were almost blinded, and it was that his glory and his presence were as white as snow. Or somebody that, or something that has been bleached. Now, all of these are aspects of the glory of God. God's glory is like looking at a diamond. And depending on the diamond's cut and its clarity and its color and the carrot of the diamond, looking at God's glory is like looking at the multifacetedness of a diamond. Depending on which advantage you look at or what angle you look at it from, it appears totally different. Now, there are 359 references to God's glory in 329 texts in the Bible. Yes, I looked them up. And thankfully, I have a Bible program that counted them for me. So the Bible has a lot to say about the glory of God. Matter of fact, there are nine different kinds of glory that's described in the Bible. Not all of them are about God's glory, but there are nine different kinds of glory in the Bible. But we're just going to focus on a couple. First, God's glory is an attribute of his person. The excellence of his character, his perfection, it indicates the infinite greatness of his worth. And then, of course, we have that text that I referred to in Exodus chapter 34. And then God's glory is his presence. We often refer to it as the Shekinah, 
The Shekinah glory of God is the Shekinah, the glory that was in the Holy of Holies where nobody was allowed to go in except the high priest and him only once a year. The glory of God. And there are texts that go with that. That all that God does, the different ways that he has chosen to reveal his glory, is that he might be admired, that he might be marveled at, that he might be exalted, that he might be praised. That God puts greater value, God puts greater value on his glory than on anything or anyone else. And in everything God does, his purpose is to preserve and display his infinite greatness and worth. In other words, his purpose is to display his glory. The last definition is God's glory is his worthiness to be praised, to be declared. Now, these are all theological and biblical definitions. And if we're really being honest, they're very heady. Very heady. But Jesus changed all that. I like something that Eugene Peterson. Eugene Peterson, Peterson said, I need something a little more, more rooted than that. He said... If holy describes God as way beyond anything we can imagine or approach, then glory describes that which is here, close, evidential. I can see glory. I can touch it, weigh it. Glory in the Hebrew literally means weighty. Something that has substance to it. And Peterson goes on and he says that when we come into church, we can't see God, but there are all kinds of reminders that God is here. Whether it be the pulpit, whether it be the musical instruments, whether it be the cross or the communion table when we have communion, all of these are signposts, all of these are symbols that remind us of the glory of God. And then Peterson adds this. Holy and glory are two words that name what is going on. Holy for what is unseen and glory for what for the seen. In other words, or another way of putting it, is that glory has roots. And it has roots in this world and it has roots in, through, and as Jesus Christ. Which prompted John to say in our text these words, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then in 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, he says this. That which was... That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and which we have touched with our hands. I like the way the King James puts this in 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. The King James says, John says, that which our hands have handled, what we've touched. Jesus, God's glory personified. 
Jesus said that the Father and I are one. What that basically means is that Jesus and the Father are on the same page. And a lot of people miss it. The disciples missed it, the Greeks missed it, the Jews missed it, and sometimes we miss it. And so that's what we mean when we say that Glad Tidings Church exists for the glory of God. We exist to make God's glory seen, and all of this put particularly and specifically in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ demonstrates for us who God is and God's glory. And so we point to Jesus. Now, just as the cross, the pulpit, the musical instruments, the communion table, all of those things are signs, if you will, or symbols of the glory of God or signposts that point to God, so are you and I. You and I, we are signposts. We are pointers. We are indicators to the glory of God. And we are signposts, pointers, and indicators to the glory of God into our community. And that's why we've said that Glad Tidings Church exists to love and serve our community. We have to learn to love and serve our community. And of course, Jesus is our model, particularly his incarnation. And there's no surprise there. And John, in the, the message of, the paraphrased message of the Bible, John says these words, and this is, the word became flesh, we just read this a moment ago, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. We saw the glory with our own eyes, the one-of-a-kind glory, like the Father, like Son, generous inside and out, true from start to finish. But the incarnation is about God in Jesus Christ moving into our neighborhood, moving into our world, becoming like us. That's the incarnation. And so moving into the neighborhood is an incarnational act, and ours must be no different. That if you and I and we as a church are going to follow the pattern of Jesus, we must be both personal and practical. Now, I want to pause, and I want you to put your seatbelt on for a moment. In Pentecostal churches, we have come to the place many times for many people that we do what I refer to as paycheck missions. That what we do is that when there's a call for mission and being involved in mission, what I do, what we do, what you do is we write a check and we pay somebody else to go and do the work of the mission. And what I'm trying to help us to understand and what we believe together is that our mission is something that I must do, we must do, you must do. It must be personal and it must be practical. It will require something specific of me. It will involve my personal, it will involve my personal investment. 
Not writing a check so I can send somebody overseas or writing a check that I can help somebody downtown or whatever the case may be or some organization in the city to be missional and to be incarnational and to be in the example of Jesus, we must indeed, it involves personal investment. We must become personally involved. It is not enough to write a check and give money. That's important, don't get me wrong. But if we're going to practice and move into our neighborhoods the way Jesus did, it's going to cost us personally. Now, another piece of this puzzle is this. I think one of the questions that we have to ask as a congregation, but not just as a congregation, as individuals, is this one, and you've heard this before. What does it mean to be the people of God, living out the story of God in the places God has placed us? What does it mean? You heard this morning in the message in tongues, there's no happenstance. I don't live in the building I live in by a fluke. You don't live in the neighborhood you live in by chance. You don't go to the school that you go to by coincidence. We believe all of these things are marked by providence and that God actually has a hand and an influence that we are to, that where we are located, whether it's in our job or whether it's in our neighborhood or whether it's in our school or wherever it is that we are located, even where we get our services, is intended by God as a place to begin to discover what it means to do personal mission. And our job, our task is to love and to serve our community. And that leads us to this. That GTC exists to invite people into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Now I want you to imagine with me for a moment I want you to imagine God thinking about you. God thinking about us. God thinking about me. I want you to think about God thinking about you. You got it? What do you think, don't answer this question out loud, what do you think God thinks when he thinks about you? Now, some of us, sadly, assume that God feels disappointment. Others of us feel that God feels anger. And still others of us may think that our sin is the first thing that catches God's attention. Well, if you think those things, then I think that we're wrong about it. I think the consequences of such a view of how God thinks of us are of incredible implications. How we think God thinks about us is very important. And I believe that when God thinks about me, when God thinks about you, when God thinks about us, his heart swells 
with love. That a smile comes across his face. That God bursts with love for us when he thinks of us. I mean, do we not find it incredible that the Bible, the name that God chooses for himself, that God has chosen to be known as love. John says these words, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So we have come to know and to believe the one that God has for us, or the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Now, after saying that, after saying that, because I've been a Pentecostal all my life, and I've been a pastor for a long time, I can hear the collective butts. And the collective but says, but you're forgetting about sin. Sin changes everything, especially how God feels about us. I disagree. Now, don't get me wrong. I am neither forgetting sin nor minimizing the significance of sin. I take sin very seriously. I take it seriously in my life. And I hope you do take it seriously in your life. I think sin does change a lot. But I do not believe that sin changes everything. Particularly how God feels about you and about me. Folks, God is simply not that fickle. I mean, think about it, parents. Our children sometimes disappoint us. Sometimes we get angry at them, but it doesn't make us stop loving them. And if this is true of you and I who are weak and frail and sinful, how much more is that true about God? God's love is never compromised by anger. The presence of anger does not pre-conclude the absence of love, particularly in God. Love is God's character. It's not simply an emotion or a feeling. And then back to Moses where God puts Moses in the crack and the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord. The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And that's just a sampling of dozens and dozens of texts in the Bible that talk about the character of God and how he thinks about us and how he feels toward us. I mean, what a different relationship would begin to develop if we would realize that God is head over heels in love with us. God just can't help loving you. He just can't help loving me. And he loves us deeply and recklessly and, he, and extravagantly just as we are. And yes, God knows I'm a sinner. But my sins do not surprise him and your sins do not surprise him. And further, Neither does our sin reduce in the slightest way his love for us. Now maybe, 
we find ourselves wanting to believe that this is true about God, but we're still not convinced. Well, thankfully, we don't have to be. Because when we come to the teaching and the ministry of Jesus, we have what is Pastor Kevin's favorite verse. And is one of the best-known texts in the Bible. And it's John chapter 3. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But listen to verse 17. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. But in order that the world might be saved through him. This is the gospel. This is how we invite people into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. This and nothing less than this is the essence of the gospel. This and nothing less than this is what we do when we invite people into a living relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And let me tell you, folks, who would ever turn that down? Who would ever turn down the fact that God is head over heels in love with them? That God bursts into a smile when he thinks of us? Well, who wouldn't want to be a part of that? So Glad Tidings Church exists to bring glory to God to love and serve our community, and to invite people into a relationship with Jesus Christ. You think we could do that? I think we can. That's why we exist. If we don't do that, there's nothing else. Now, next week, of course, we'll talk a little bit about how we'll do that in a more practical way. But let's take a moment and pray together. Father, we love you. But, oh, Lord, we only love you because you love us and how you love us. Oh, 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 how you love us. Lord, if I could only learn, if I could only be reminded of your love on a regular basis, I would find rest for my soul. If I could be reminded of your love, then we would be able to say yes to this God. Many people would say yes to this God the same way that we did. So, Lord, I pray this day that as we as a church move forward in talking about who we want to be as a congregation and how we want to be as a congregation in our community, that you would lead us, that you would help us, not just as a corporate body of people, but as individuals. What does it mean? What does it mean for me to follow the example of Jesus when in relationship to Ruth, in relationship to my immediate family, in my relationship with my neighbor, in my relationship with the person who 
takes my credit card to pay my gas, where I get my coffee, where I go to school. Help us to be fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ, who live out what it means to be disciples of Christ in physical, practical, and meaningful ways. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.